Well, hello and welcome to the latest installment of the Growth Adventure Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Appel, and pleased to be joined today by Paul Babcock, CEO of Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County, which for those of you who are essential Indiana residents, in addition to Eskenazi, which is a beautiful county hospital facility, also encompasses public health officials throughout the county. So Paul, welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, likewise. And and so before we dive into it, would you mind giving our listeners just a brief overview of yourself as well as Health and Hospital? Yeah, for sure. So real quickly, Paul Babcock, President and CEO of Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County. I am not a native of central Indiana. I'm actually from northwest Indiana, a town called Chesterton, but was fortunate enough to be able to get accepted to Butler, I don't know, 20 years in the did, you know, four years here and then actually joined the Peace Corps right afterwards, spent two years in East Africa and Uganda doing uh, health education, which was totally new to me, totally outside of my training at, in Butler. And then that's where I got my health bug and I ended up getting a job down here at the county health department 15 years ago. Worked my way up through the health, public health field and then ended up working for the mayor for five years doing running a new office of public health and safety. And then was fortunate enough to be able to be selected to be the president and CEO of the Health and Hospital Corporation. So that's how it's my brief background of how I've gotten here. I've got a law degree and a master's in public affairs. I guess that's me in a nutshell, in a, in a real roundabout way. So before we get into probably some of the unique challenges you face taking over as the chief public health official for Marion County, in the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, I'm just curious, what was it about your experience in Uganda that made you say public health is what I want to dedicate my life to? Yes. Interestingly enough, it was the just the ability to help people and see how sometimes small activities, small actions have a global bigger impact. I will say that it was also crassly one of the one of the few skill sets I had on my resume coming out of college and then spending two years in the Peace Corps doing health. And it just seemed like that was the, the space that I could at least start in. And then it just over time developed into a passion where you can measure change and really have an impact on people. That's I'm always tip my cap to people who follow their their passions around helping others. But tipping back to your current role. So obviously you were in the mayor's office. You were one of the chief architects essentially around the city of Indianapolis's response to COVID-19 and, and all the impacts around that. So it wasn't a new topic to you by any means, but you almost had to put on different hats when you shifted from policy, right, on yeah. the, the, the city side to actual delivery of care and in truly trying to mitigate the impacts of COVID on, you know, the broader communities within Indianapolis. Like, could you just walk through, you were interim CEO yeah. first before becoming named permanent. What were some of the initial struggles that you faced stepping into that role? The first initial struggle was just wrapping my head around the, the finances, right? So, the Health and Hospital Corporation is a $1.8 billion enterprise in the city of Indianapolis, and we've got a diverse set of divisions. And so understanding how each of the division's finances impact the global corporate uh, structure and what that means for the people of Marion County. So, you know, it was a real shift from the policy, the architecture, the, how, the to some extent, the implementation 
to really taking a global look at the finances and how then the finances impact the implementation and the execution amongst the different divisions. And then, but then that comes with choices, right? As a leader, you have to make choices about what to, to support and what not to support. And then, you know, how, how does that impact your strategic vision and fit in within the mission of the corporation? So I went from a behind the scenes actor with the mayor and making the policy recommendations to actually being the, that final executive who says yes or no on things and understanding you know, what that means on a day-to-day basis for the corporation, for the people of Mar- and the people of Marion County. I always try to keep the, that fact of the, the mission of the corporation at the forefront. It's not what does this do for Paul Babcock as the CEO, it's what does this decision do for the people of Marion County and how does that protect them? How does that make them safer? And how does that fulfill my fiduciary duty to take when it comes to them um, and the corporation? That That's a great point. I think it touches on the theme of this podcast, which is personal and professional growth. And when you said you went from the person who was advising on policy, right? You certainly had opinions, you had beliefs, you had stature, all those things. But at the end of the day, it's Mayor Hogsett, right? Whose name is yeah. on whatever decision is made. Now as CEO... It's Paul Babcock's name who's on the decision that's being made. How was that journey for for you personally? You said you always focus on the mission, which I think is hugely critical, but I would imagine there was still a growing period for you where you were, and I'm almost certainly you still are coming to terms and getting comfortable with what that means. I'll say it's, it, 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 that's a, I appreciate that question because it's a, it's something I've thought about a lot. I will say that to your point, it's, I'm still growing and learning as a leader in this role. But it, it is interesting when you sign doc contracts worth X amount of dollars and it's your name on the bottom of it, right? Because it's not somebody else. And so there's a certain level of accountability that you, you just have to have. And there's just an understanding. I don't, I and mean, hey, look, this is, if someone were to ultimately come back and question the decision, the buck stops with me. It doesn't, I can't shirk that, that accountability and that responsibility. And so that's, that's a really interesting growth like mindset, if that makes sense. Cause I will say the mayor has always stressed, and this is something I've, I've learned from him and, t- and taken away one of the many things. And that was always that at the end of the day, the decision is his and it's his name that's going to be in the paper. It's his name that's on the media and it's his name that gets held accountable. And I now understand much better what that means in this role. And I, th- I think that's an important thing to, to keep it, uh, next to the people of Marion County, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think regardless of how many constituents you're, you are serving or, or how many colleagues you're serving, you're never going to make everybody happy. And you're trying to make the best decision based on the set of circumstances and facts that you have. And it's not always a, a fun place to be in. But no, no I, mean, I think that's I, something that every leader struggles with at some point in their career. The funny thing about it is I've definitely become much more of a fan of documentation and making sure that whatever the decision is justified by something that's in writing and it's right behind whatever the decision is. Just not because it, I think there's any sort of ne'er-do-well that may occur, but it's when somebody comes and says, hey, why did you sign hire this service to do x y what's the reason and and in fact i've got a contract in front of me right now that has some of that language on there so it's an interesting position to be in and and every hr professional and attorney who's listening to this podcast is nodding along to those (laughs) words we we could spend the entire 20 plus minutes just talking about covid but i want to 
briefly segue to one more COVID-related topic yeah. before we move on to more broader public health questions. So we are recording this podcast on Friday, May the 14th. Yesterday evening, the CDC obviously revised their guidance on masks. We, we are both proud residents of Marion County, Indiana, and fully support the esteemed Dr. Virginia Kane and the mayor for as long as they want to maintain their mask mandate. But I'm sure this has led to an interesting last 18 plus hours for you, where on the one hand, you, as a public health professional, you believe in science and you're going to support recommendations of the CDC, but also as a practitioner of, of public health, that power still resides with local officials in Indiana, which is appropriate. And every county has different set of circumstances that, that they're facing. I'm not asking you as the CEO of Health and Hospital, but just as a public health professional, how do you balance those two disparate messages? And and what would you say to residents of Marion County who probably justifiably feel a little bit like, who am I supposed to listen to here? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So a fun anecdote I heard this morning before I dive into this is there's a rumor now going around in public health circles, which they do exist, by the way, that the CDC didn't even inform the White House of their decision. Now, obviously, I can't confirm that, but it's just an interesting tidbit about and it's relative to what we've been experiencing in the last 18 hours where no one saw knew this was coming. So for it came out of left field and it's really forced us to try and balance, to your point, what is the best path forward? Because there's a multitude of factors that are going to go into any of these decisions. Uh, for example, what's our vaccination rate? Right now we're at about 40% in Marion County. And then the next question is, okay, that's not anywhere near where we'd like to be. It's clear the science says that being vaccinated really does protect you against COVID-19. And so then the next question is, does removing the mask mandate or loosening it or change, you know, changing it to a recommendation, does that disincentivize people from getting vaccinated? And so that's a, the, this interesting balancing act we're, we're putting ourselves in, where we're placed, where we've spent the last probably four months just pounding on the table saying you need to get vaccinated, you need to get vaccinated so we can return to normal. And now the CDC's in a sense confirming that, but confirming it in a way that really from a behavioral economic standpoint, does it incentivize people to go get vaccinated or does it actually just disincentivize folks? Because to your point, do you listen to Dr. Kane on the one hand or do you listen to the CDC on the other? And I think that's the that's the really tough position we're placed in because you know, CDC's gold standard. But at the same time, you know, I was thinking about this morning, the <laughs> the previous administration's CDC had a whole host of issues. And not to say that the current administration's CDC does or doesn't, but it's just this weird, now everyone's, the CDC said it, so let's go forward. And I think candidly, we're, we're have, we actually have a meeting this weekend to go through all the stuff to figure out what our our new recommendations and positions are. And as a public health professional, I still would say that you're wearing a mask is probably the safest way in public to prevent yourself from getting COVID-19. But even more importantly, I think it's shown that it prevents a whole host of other, you know, respiratory illnesses. And you, if you look at the flu rates, and this is either due to wearing a mask or uh, lack of international travel, the flu, we thought we were going to have this double wave, double pandemic, and we didn't. Flu was it's at its historic low last season. So it'll be interesting to see if people relax their restrictions. What does that do for other, not only for COVID-19, but then what does it do for influenza? And 
We'll have to look. I mean, this is really wonky, and so I apologize. But if you look to like Australia is where we look when it comes to modeling the United States, they generally, they tend to be similar. And Australia is entering its quote unquote flu season here in the relatively near future. And so if that goes up, then it'll be interesting to see what happens to us, especially since I don't think they have a mask mandate. So, you know, there's a whole host of weird things that come into play in making these decisions. You don't ever need to apologize with me for being wonky because we'll have, we'll have a four hour podcast uh, on my other podcast, behavioral economics today about uh, all the studies that are going to come out of the real life experiment that we've been living here these last 12, 18 months. But you did touch on something there though, that I, I want to follow up on, which is when you think about science in general, right? Science isn't looking to prove something. They're looking to disprove something, right? Generally speaking, and, and this is said as somebody who's a finance major, so I'm not a scientist, but generally speaking, science is based around doubt. And the intersection with public health is a very interesting one, right? Because by nature, scientists are skeptics mm -hmm. and public health is so much about messaging and convincing people, right? So there's that in, inherent tension between what science is telling scientists as well as what scientists think and how do we best then translate that into messaging, which I think gets back to your point around the CDC. In your role at Health and Hospital, who are you talking to or how are you thinking about, like how do we communicate these things that inherently have percentages of doubt around them because there is no certainty in science. That's a great question. It's also probably one of the biggest challenges we've faced in the COVID-19 pandemic era where the science is so, one, it's rapidly evolving. If we think back and here, everyone in the beginning thought, okay, well, COVID is spread only through large droplets of coffee, right? And then there's this whole back and forth about whether or not it's aerosolized. And so the, the CDC is... <laughs> It's interesting. They made two important announcements this week. And the one that I think from a public health standpoint is the most important was on Monday and got no fanfare. And that's that they solidified that COVID-19 is an aerosolized virus. And so it hangs in the air. So then how do you take that and to your point, this is your, the root of your question, and turn it into something that impacts the behavior of individuals? And that's when we ended up sitting down with a bunch of really good marketers and advertisers and walk through the complex aspects of the of our public health restrictions and ask them, how do we translate this into something that's going to influence people's behavior in a way that gets us to where we want to be? And sometimes you get a good answer and sometimes you don't. I think that's, I know that's not really per se answering it, your question, but I think it's really the challenge of this in, endeavor. And it's a lot easier to do public health interventions on more objective and like concrete things, for example, when it comes to nutrition, right? You can set up a class and then talk to folks about X, Y, and Z, and you can even measure behavior change. If you look at their, their diet, then you look at whether or not their diabetes is under control. For an influenza and or COVID, it's a really, they're spread through interpersonal interactions. And so how you're really asking, how do you impact someone's behavior with someone else. And generally that behavior is a meaningful conversation or a meaningful, like a friend or a family member. We hope that when we hire the right team and put them together and explain the concepts that we can, we come up with the right answer. That, that's interesting. And it's actually a great segue and pivot to another set of conversations I'd love to have with you, which is yeah. 
Hopefully global pandemics are a once in a hundred year phenomenon. Yeah. And hopefully this is your only one dealing with it as a, as a public health professional. And obviously it's incredibly serious and we still have a ways to go, but we've come a long way. But when you talk about public health, I think all of us as citizens have learned a whole lot more about public health over the last year than probably any of us ever knew prior. Right. And do you view on the other side of COVID an opportunity with that increased awareness to drive the conversation around other equally as meaningful, if not more long-term impactful areas of public health that have always been on your radar, but maybe haven't necessarily been on the radar of your average ordinary citizen around the country? No, I, I, I 100% think so. For example, you, there's an article in Health Affairs, which makes me even, you know, more wonky than I'm quoting a scientific journal on a podcast, but there's an article in Health Affairs that talks about how over the last 10 years, public health spending you know, from the government has just drastically decreased. And they draw a correlation between the response to COVID to that decrease in funding because there just wasn't an investment because people it wasn't on the forefront of people's minds. And so I think what, what, if we're able to tie things back in a way to COVID, if we were to talk about and we look at the disparities when it comes to the impact of COVID-19 death rates um, on our black and brown neighbors, right? And then we tie into some of that to the fact that those communities also are historically underserved from an education standpoint, from a um, access to healthcare standpoint. And those things correlate, I think, very strongly with the, the higher death rates, right? I mean, if you look at the science, it talks about how underserved communities have been more impacted by COVID-19. And using that, those facts and, and that message, I think we're able to really talk about how, look, if we want to prevent this type of one disparity, but also this type of pandemic, we need to invest in public health and then use that public health investment to invest in our underserved communities. And I think that message resonates with the, with the, the lawmakers who end up really do the large scale funding for public health. And our hope here in, in you know Marion County, but also just Indiana in general, is that we're able to convince the legislature to really increase the public health funding because we don't rank very high as an understatement when it comes to spending public health infrastructure here in Indiana. You know, we're fortunate in Marion County to have the, the health and hospital corporation and our tax base is larger. So we have better, better facilities, better trained folks, but we still need better increased funding to your point and an increased investment. And I think the awareness of COVID will allow us to get there. Yeah, ho hopefully, although some of the recent news around attempts to roll back one of Governor Pence's better public health priorities, which was the needle exchange program that yeah. dramatically decreased the spread of HIV in Southern Indiana. I'm optimistic, but I'm not totally optimistic. Yeah. In a previous conversation, to touch on that disparity in healthcare access, you talked about how what is the future of healthcare delivery in a lot of ways relates to a previous podcast that we had with Ben Evans of Marathon Health, formerly Our Health, which is yeah. moving away from a centralized healthcare distribution system to a decentralized one where, you know, instead of assuming people come to you you're coming to the people. Could you maybe talk about what your vision is around that? No, so I think that is spot on, right? If you think about the history of healthcare here in the United States, not, let's take away Marion County, let's take away Indiana. It's been, since CMS was created, Medicare, Medicaid, it's been a fee-for-service model where you went to healthcare 
and you had a service performed on you and then, then the bill was sent. And so there's never any you know, accountability. And so over the last 50 years, we've moved towards value. That, I guess in the industry, it's value-based purchasing, but I just call it value-based care. And that is about the outcome. And I think you're going to see over the next 50 years, probably the next 10, value-based healthcare being the, the way of the future. And so then to, to Ben's point about coming to healthcare, going to the people, being decentralized, you're going to end up seeing more and more, I, I would even argue, you should see corner healthcare facilities, right? Where you'd call it a dock in a box where anybody, no matter where they're at, has access and they can walk in and get a checkup. And then if the checkup becomes, yeah, hey, you've got to go get X, Y, and Z service done, that either the doctor or the provider that you just saw has the ability to drive you there, or it's rather relatively close to get you there. I mean, in theory, what should happen is I make a phone call. I need to go see my doctor. It's a doc in a box. Either I walk across the street to get it, or a car comes, picks me up. And then that car will, if I need to go more, it takes me to a place that has a little bit higher level of care. And then if there's more, then you end up going to the hospital in need of whatever. I just, the model of healthcare is going to change to where it's about the outcome versus the actual, just the service provision. And that's going to be done in interesting ways. I had a conversation yesterday or maybe the day before because uh, Walmart has decided to provide $4 telehealth visits to, I think, all of their employees. It used to be 40 So now they've just decided, look, it's $4 for a telehealth visit. Amazon is getting into the healthcare business. Ultimately, I think the next thing you'll see, and, and this is where I think healthcare is in a disruptive state, it's going to become a, a very logistics-driven industry to where I can make a phone call and for $4, I can call my doctor and say, hey, my throat hurts. They say, oh, blah, blah, blah. And the next thing you know, two hours later, a drone or a person is dropping off the prescription. It's going to be to the point where it's it is truly coming to you in one way, shape, or form. And the Amazons and the Walmarts of the world are going to be best prepared to really do the delivery of the medicine. Now, the question of the actual diagnosis and care is still a little bit up in the air. But I foresee the future of healthcare being so disruptive over the next 10 years and so focused on the actual outcome that our current model, in 10 years, it will not look any way as it does now. And I think that's really cool. Now, how does that impact the public system of some entity such as myself, I think that that's a more challenging thought process and more challenging discussion from a strategic standpoint. And that's something that I've been wrestling with because there's the argument that the private sector has is more nimble and has more capital to really be able to address these challenges faster and potentially better. So it's a fun space to be in. It's also a challenging space, right? Healthcare is now 18% of GDP. And once it hits 20, I generally think that's when the disruption occurs. And we're already starting to see it. Like my Walmart example with Oak Street Health, with Marathon. It's just, I think your people are expecting outcomes now versus just actual service. Yeah, I, I'm sure there are many doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners who would chafe at the thought of them being <laughs> yeah. considered a logistics company. But in a lot of ways, yeah. I think you're spot on and we're up against our, our time. But I mean, the logistic thing also ties into another comment you made last time we spoke, which was around one possible solution for food deserts is induce or encourage the Amazons of the world to accept SNAP payments for grocery delivery because you've one eliminated the transportation barrier, and you've eliminated 
the need to try to incentivize market-focused companies to place a location in an area where, using air quotes, they don't perceive a return. That's 100% correct. And I think there's actually applications at the federal level to do that, and they're just waiting for um, USDA to give them grant on the waiver. Uh, and I think the day that happens, I think the grocery industry, just like the healthcare industry, is going to be flipped on its head. So we're in a, we're in a really interesting, cool time, and I think I'm excited to see how it plays out. Technology is not it, it's not the answer to everything, but it's an incredible tool that we yes. should all leverage. We could honestly talk for much, yeah. much longer, but we're up against it here. So we're going to pivot over to the lightning round. So there uh, are no wrong answers. They're just long answers. What would we find on Paul Babcock's car radio? Uh, 92.3, what is it? WTTS. For you non-Central Indiana listeners, check them out <laughs> on the internet. It's a, it's a good station. What would we find on your bedside table or e-reader? So right now my bedside table has three books. One, is a short story compendium that I haven't finished. The other is the biography of Aaron Burr, my brother gave to me. And the third one is a bunch of vignettes. The title of the book is Broken. I don't, and it's by, the, the author escapes me, but he did the shoot. It's a, there's a series and it's about a cartel in Mexico and the United States and the DEA. And I can't remember anything else past that. <laughs> I think I've read a very similar book which is fascinating <laughs> and equally troubling. Uh, so next question is uh, cats or dogs? Neither. But if I had a choice, I guess. No, no wrong no wrong answers. And the final one, and this one's a bit more serious, is what is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever been given? You know, I think the best piece of advice I ever was given was just to follow your passion and everything will end up being all right. That's good advice. And going back full circle to your time in Uganda and how you ended yeah. up in public health. So. I like how you bookended that. Um, <laughs> Paul, before we wrap up, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do a, a gratuitous public service plug for all of our Central Indiana listeners. Uh, if you have not yet been vaccinated, Andrew Appel is strongly encouraging you to get vaccinated. But Paul is a public health professional. Where should people turn to get vaccinated? So I appreciate that. So everyone needs to turn to either 211 or if they don't have access to the Internet, they can go. And if they do have access to the internet, it's rshot.in.gov. And you can go there and register to get vaccinated anywhere across the state of Indiana. And I encourage every one of your listeners to go get vaccinated. I am fully vaccinated. It feels good in many ways. I know that there's hesitancy, but people should go and do it, if not for themselves and for their neighbors. And it's going to make this, this summer a lot better for everybody if we can all be vaccinated. So that's my gratuitous plug. And Andriana, thank you. Uh, for allowing me to be on the podcast and thanking all your listeners for hopefully indulging in uh, some wonky talk, but it's much appreciated. Uh, Paul Babcock, president and CEO of Health and Hospital Corporation in Marion County. I've enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to continuing off the pod and just have a great weekend. For sure. Same to you. Thank you.